um, training, as it were, what will be for our, our forever occupation to praise you. And as we gather this morning, God, we, we pray that you would teach us, that you'd lead us. Uh, would you exalt the name of Jesus through the preaching of your word? Father, thank you for sending your own son to be our substitute. Jesus, thank you for your incredible, matchless humility that you would empty yourself, become a servant, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We magnify your name. And Spirit of God, uh, like the very first time that you opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, uh, we need you this morning again to do that work that we'd see again the glory of God in the face of Jesus, that we'd see through the pages of Scripture uh, the, the hope that we have, the life that we have in your name. So Spirit, would you teach and lead and convict and train, shape and mold us into the image of Jesus. We love you. We thank you for the time we get to spend together this morning and ask that you'd make our hearts humble and hungry for what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Anybody out there? All right. Grab your Bibles. You can open uh, to the book of Ruth, which is in your Old Testament. If you're using a chair Bible, it'll be on page 208. And after several weeks of uh, some topical series that we, we walked through with parenting and kingdom relationships. We're going to dive into what is our normal pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we're going to take over the next 12 weeks or so, we're going to preach through three small books in the Old Testament. And this morning we're going to be starting our journey through the book of Ruth. And we're going to, by God's grace, make it all the way through chapter one. Uh, There are a lot of different ways you can preach, particularly narrative books. So narrative meaning it's, it's a story and so you can stop after a couple verses and pull things out and apply things, and you wouldn't be wrong for doing that. Uh, admittedly, as a preacher, I have the hardest time preaching through narratives. My brain is wired a little bit more like Paul's letters, where there's kind of bullet points. I don't know if any of y'all can identify with that. Um, but as we get into Ruth, you know, one of the things we'll see is there is continuity in the story. There's a way in which you could probably preach all four chapters at once and capture much of the message of the book of Ruth and that message really in some ways could be summarized as a story, a redeeming story of love and faithfulness in an otherwise really dark period in Israel's history. So Ruth comes right after the, the Bible book of Judges, a season in time that was marked by unrest and moral decline and decay. And so Ruth and her family are situated right in the midst of that mess. And her story stands as, a, as kind of a beacon of light and life in the midst of a, a season for Israel that was really marked by, by death and, as I mentioned, moral decay. The beauty of Ruth's love and dedication not only stands out in contrast to the overall time period, but it also stands in contrast, which we'll see today, um, to the, the loss and darkness that happens in her, her life as well as her mother-in-law's life, whose name is Naomi. And so the first chapter, in a way that was, quite honestly, a little bit more surprising to me, I'd read Ruth over the years multiple times, but have never studied it, really. In chapter one, it's really kind of inescapable. There's a lot of loss in chapter one. 
There's a lot of difficulty, and that by, by itself even serves as a little bit of a backdrop for the brilliance that comes through Ruth's profession of faith, ultimately, and her dedication to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, some of you probably are familiar enough with Ruth. There's a temptation to kind of view it maybe as like the Hallmark movie of the Old Testament. It's like there's this story of redeeming love, like everybody wins in the end. And, and But I think as you'll see this morning, like it's actually, there's some really deep waters that we get into in the first chapter. Because undoubtedly there's some of you this morning that are coming out of places in your past where there's been deep hurt and brokenness and loss. Maybe you're in the middle of one of those seasons right now. And one of the things as believers that that we find to be probably most mysterious in our lives is the way that God meets us, the way that he walks with us, the way that he is in control of everything in every season, even in our deepest and darkest moments. And there's a mystery of the, of the faith, of walking with God in the midst of those hard times that we see really practically in this story. In the book of Ruth, in some ways you find it a little bit disorienting, even this first chapter, like is she complaining in a way that's like dishonoring to God or is she just kind of giving voice to her frailty? And I would submit to you, even the commentators are kind of split on some of these moments. And I think there's what maybe can initially be a little bit confusing and disheartening is actually really encouraging. Because when you come to the end of our lives, if you were to kind of chart our existence as individual people, I would submit to you our lives are made up much of the same kind of tapestry. Like moments of courageous faith and moments where we have a crisis of faith. Like moments of deep devotion and moments of depression. You have periods of famine and periods of Harvest, trusting God and doubting God, waiting in faith and wavering in faith, emptiness, fullness, difficulty and devotion. I think we'll see that even in this short chapter. We're going to start by reading the first five verses, which gives us a really helpful orientation to the book overall. But let's read together. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, the sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we see right away kind of the backdrop of tragedy that starts this story. But Ruth is a historical book situated, as I mentioned, in the period that we kind of know as the Judges, this era in Old Testament history. So the book of Judges shows the unfortunate cycles in the nation of Israel's history in their walk with God that were marked by rebellion, judgment, rescue, and restoration. And that cycle just continues on and on throughout the book. So these judges were military, political leaders God would bring in to to rescue the people of God, and then the cycle would repeat. Rebellion, judgment, repentance, and rescue, and on it goes. 
And God's hand of disciplining judgment against his people takes different forms throughout history and in the book of Judges. And one of the forms it takes is, is famine sometimes. That's what we see in the first verse. There was a famine in the land. So in this Bethlehem of Judah, most of us would probably find that town familiar, at least by name, namely at Christmas time. So Elimelech's hometown is Bethlehem familiar to most of us. Before Bethlehem was the birthplace of Jesus, it became the hometown of Ruth, who ends up being the great-grandmother of King David, who ultimately is of the line of Jesus, where we see the ultimate king of kings, which we'll find at the end of the book. The book of Ruth begins with the departure of a man from Bethlehem, and you could say it ends with the arrival of a king in Bethlehem. And a promise that ultimately overshadows the darkness we just read in those first five verses. Now, I can only imagine how heavy the weight of a famine must have been to Elimelech and his family. I haven't been through a famine on, with my family. I haven't journeyed through that. Most of us probably haven't. You can kind of imagine just for a moment what it would be like to not know where food was coming from for your family. Now, unless Elimelech and Naomi were just really bad at choosing baby names... Their son's names actually give an indication for the fact that they probably were underneath the weight of the famine for some amount of time before they left because their boy's names were Malon, which is sickness, and Kilion, which means wasting. So bad baby names indeed, right? It's a tough cross to bear if you're those two guys. So we can send them some grace like we'll likely... We would likely have found it really difficult to remain in Bethlehem in the face of famine, but certainly there were some who did. That's going to be an important part of the story because there's a way in which part of the story is a turning away from the promised land that God had provided to his people, and in doing so, a turning away from God himself. So the movement away from Bethlehem was a significant turn away from really the hand of God and the provision of God to his people in the promised land. So seven times within the first seven verses of the book, there's a reference to geography or nationality, which at first glance might feel a little bit random and unimportant. But they're actually really vital to understand the overall framework of of the book and the nation of Israel and its interaction with nations around it, namely Moab in this story. A significant element and pattern in Israel's rebellion, as we mentioned, there was rebellion and disobedience to God, and a significant part of that was their failure to drive out the nations in the promised land that God had told them to drive out in their conquest of the land God had given them. And Moab was one of those nations. And we see Moab throughout the Old Testament. One particular place we see is in Judges 10.6. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, that's a familiar phrase in the book of Judges. And served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, Moab wasn't only a stumbling block for the nation of Israel. They actually subdued or ruled over Israel for 18 years during the period of the Judges. So far from a wise strategy just to find food in another place, like this movement away from Bethlehem and the place where God's people were to dwell was a movement away from the king himself, away from God 
himself, which becomes really a central part of our understanding of this story. There's a lot of the names in this chapter just have buried within them some irony. So Bethlehem, uniquely, it means house of bread. So you could literally understand it to mean that this family, Elimelech and his family, left the house of bread to go find food in the wilderness, which is where Moab is. A picture of irony. And don't we do that? Like you see yourself in that picture. Like we, we find ourselves hungry and we look to the world to try to fulfill us in a place where God says he's there and we should remain and wait on him. We look for Moab to fulfill us when God is the one who alone can do that. Not only is the name Bethlehem a little bit ironic in the story, but Elimelech's name is God is King. But based on this turn away from the place of God and the people of God, and in doing so, God himself, he didn't live and act as if God was his king. We don't have any background. There's been a lot of commentary on like maybe what this looked like. Did Naomi and Elimelech have a conversation? Was one of them kind of winning over the other as to when they should go or if they should go? We really don't know those details, but ultimately, you know, they did turn. They turned and they went to, to Moab. And their decision, you could say, maybe matches the, the overall moral temperature of the Israelites in the book of Judges. And in many places, one in particular in, in Judges 17.6, that captures the heart of the people in the Judges area is this, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we can see our culture through that lens, right? Everyone defining what's right, what's true, the supposed way where we're gonna find food and life and security and substance and purpose. And ultimately that captures the heart, the minds of men planning their own paths. But in the midst of it all, even in the brokenness, the Lord directing steps. So instead of waiting on God and trusting in him to provide for their needs, they take matters into their own hands. The language in verse one of chapter 1 mirrors almost identical to Genesis 12:10. We have Abram and Sarai because of famine run to Egypt to try to find what they need, which was a path paved with all sorts of difficulty if you name if you know that story. I won't delineate that here, but the language is almost exactly the same. And what was initially a place of temporary sojourning, like a, just kind of passing through sort of moment to find some food, becomes a place of permanent dwelling. And some of you might remember, if you've read through the, the book of Genesis and the story of Lot and how he, at the beginning, before the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he found himself on the outskirts of Sodom. By the time we get back to Lot, when he's rescued, he's actually dwelling in Sodom. Isn't that a good picture of what sin does, like compromise? Like a momentary compromise isn't really just a moment a lot of times for us, right? It really represents a movement, like a momentary choice to decide against the things of God and the things of the flesh really becomes more of a movement away from God and a movement toward the world than we have here. This place of temporary sojourning becomes a long-term dwelling and and we can look at ourselves and ask like how did I get here how did this one moment this one decision turn into years or decades of slipping away from God and part of what we should learn from this story is that as a mentor of mine used to always say is sin will always take you deeper than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay 
And that's a good warning for us to heed at any point in our lives. Momentary compromise doesn't often just last for a moment. It's a movement away from God. So their departure from Moab may have initially seemed like a good call. Maybe they have food, right? Sons had wives. But then as Warren Wiersbe summarized, that Elimelech and his family exchanged one famine for three funerals. And our spiritual or practical famine will often look to Moab for satisfaction and relief. But the fullness offered by Moab, places where God isn't, only gives way to a spiritual, deep, like emptiness, apart from God. The loss of Naomi's husband and the loss of her two sons, in addition to seeing that associated grief for her daughters-in-law was a crushing, devastating weight for her, understandably so. As we continue to read, Ruth somehow hears of God's provision, or Naomi does, hears of God's provision back home, and she goes to return. So that's where we pick up. Let's look in verse 6. Well, we're going to read 6 through 18, a bigger chunk of this go-round. It says this. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Naomi's loss was understandably a crushing weight for her. You see that in verse 13. It's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We'll come back to that in just a moment. It also seems, and this is where you see a little bit of the commingling of practically you look at her exchange with her daughters-in-law, maybe in best case, she's just kind of looking out for their best interests. Like, hey, there's no way I can assure you a husband if you come with me. I don't have anything to offer you. Go back to your mother's home. There at least you have some semblance of 
security. And you look at that, you're like, well, that makes common sense. It actually makes practical sense. It seems to be wise. And maybe it is to some degree. But one of the challenges we see, it also seems to be the pain of her loss caused her faith to falter. The return to Bethlehem was a return to the land of promise and a return to the promise of God and the God of promise. But Naomi tried to convince her daughters-in-law that it was better for them not to come to that place. So she says, go back to Moab. You can fall back on your mother's house. Go back to Moab. Get a husband. Go back or you forfeit the security that you need and that you want. And one of the things I would say is that difficulty can cause the eyes of faith to grow dim. So in the face of pain, most of you at this point in your life have been through difficulty. And you know what I mean when I say that difficulty has a particular way of diminishing the brilliance of the hand of God and his faithfulness. It can make the eyes of faith dim. And there's a way in which I feel relatively comfortable. There's moments in this story where Naomi's counsel to her daughters-in-law seems to inch into that terrain. And here's the one place where I feel like that is most apparent. If you go to verse 15, this is kind of in the second appeal to Ruth. So Orpah's already taken, as one person said, the golden parachute and kind of hightailed back to Moab. We never hear of her again. Verse 15, and she said, Naomi's saying to Ruth, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, and here's the part, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now here's a moment where it seems like from the lens of someone who knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of heaven, for them to say, hey, it's better for you to go back to gods who aren't really gods at all than to come with me to a place where you can be introduced to the one true God. But difficulty can cause the eyes of faith to grow dim. Pain can blind us to the promises and goodness of God. This is one of the moments where we get a glimpse of that presence of both doubt and belief, frailty and faith. But one encouraging part about this is even the choice to leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem is a choice of return to God. So no matter what she said along the way, there's still a movement back to God. Though she may have doubted, though she may have faltered in her faith in some sense along the way, she's still moving back to the people of God. And as I was praying about this, trying to mine out for us, maybe just in particular ways this meets us, maybe this is one way as a pastor I could encourage you. If you are confused and hurting because of the presence of real pain in your life and difficulty, let me just encourage you, you don't have to pretend that you're not confused and hurting. You don't have to pretend that you're somewhere that you're not. But here's the other encouragement, is keep turning back to God. Keep returning back. Keep fighting the fight of faith to believe in his promises. Keep moving toward him. He is what you need. And we see the mercy of God at work in the bitterness of loss. Naomi tries to convince Ruth she may lose everything, but the converted heart of Ruth knows the one true God. And this kind of harkens back. It kind of speaks from silence. But there's some way in which Ruth has become acquainted with Naomi's God, even in the face and the climate of this pain and loss in Moab. 
because she's journeying back. Her response is, I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to be with you. Your people will be my people. Your God, I've seen it in your life, Ruth. Your God will be my God. I don't want the gods that I once worshipped in Moab. But the converted heart of Ruth possesses and demonstrates a love that defies self-interest and temporary security. And that's what the heart of new life is for us as believers. Right? We defy self-interest and temporary security if it means we get God in the end. And her response is something like this. I have a new home. Like your home is my home. Where you lodge, that's where I lodge. Like I have a new people. Like your people will be my people. I don't want the gods I used to serve. Your God will be my God. It doesn't matter to me what Orpah or anybody else is doing. I don't want to worship and follow the gods that I once followed. I'll be with you the rest of my life. And Ruth's unwilling, unrelenting commitment to remain with Naomi is a demonstration of what true conversion is. Taking up our cross, counting the cost, losing our life for Jesus Christ and for his gospel, counting everything to be lost if in the end we gain Jesus. It really is a picture of what redeeming love and redeeming faith looks like. Ruth's love for Naomi is a redeeming love. Our love for Christ is a redeeming love as his was to us. Like Ruth, we proclaim, I have a new home. This world is not my home. I don't belong here. I'm just, I'm just passing through. Heaven is my home. I have a new people. God, your people will be my people. I don't want the gods I used to bow to. I only bow to you. It doesn't matter to me what others are doing. I'm never turning back. As you see the end of this story, verse 19, go there with me. It says, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitterness. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This section right here caused me to wrestle a lot this week. Because there's certain moments, like you read things in, in your Bible, and you're like, I don't, it's uncomfortable to read this language. Because it communicates something that's, if we're honest, is uncomfortable to say out loud. It's, un- it's uncomfortable in a sense to believe what Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, that God is the one who both wounds and heals. But the alternative is this, is that we have a God, if he's not sovereign over everything, he's really sovereign over nothing. If there's anything, any circumstance or moment or pain that's outside of his control, then he's no longer king. And that's really no alternative at all. And that's not biblical. And so we're left with this mystery. This mystery wherein God superintends and sovereignly decrees even difficult things 
to the end of seeing his name glorified and us finding life in him. The workings of God in history and in our lives are mysterious. It can be hard to reconcile that truth of God being the ones who both wounds and heals. Multiple commentators, in addition to our own pastor, Pastor Bill, when he did a summary sermon on Ruth several months ago, quoted a 1773 hymn called Light Shining Out of Darkness by William Cowper. We'll have three verses from this hymn, and I just want to read them. It captures the mysterious workings of God while also joining it to the mercy that comes from the same dark shadows that give us difficulty. And it says this. It says, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Here's one thing I found myself repeating a lot this week. Much like Naomi and Ruth, we can't see the end of our story, of our story. Like there are moments in life, like, like the loss of my dad would be mine. I don't quite know the purpose of God, and I may never know on this side of heaven why my dad died of cancer at 56. And the moment it doesn't make complete sense to me, it still doesn't make complete sense to me. There's no aligning of the stars that helps it make sense to the human mind. And my guess is many, if not most of us, have something that we look at like I can't quite reconcile this but here's my encouragement is where you can't see the end of your story it forces you to keep in view the end of God's story where you feel the mystery of God working in ways that are dark to your intellect they only become sunshine to your soul when you keep the end in mind that is ultimately clear for the believer that every tear that falls, every shadow of loss, every ounce of pain, every counted cost, every moment taking up our cross is a dreaded cloud big with mercy. And this is the hope of the Christian. In Jesus Christ, every dark cloud leads to the bright morning of resurrection. Every single dark cloud, if you're in Christ, you have in view, it leads me ultimately to resurrected life. And that's why we sing. Can I get an amen in here? Every dark cloud, the darkest of moments you can apprehend on this side of heaven ends in resurrection. That's the end of our story. And where you don't see things align in such a way that makes sense here, you have to be oriented to the ultimate, final, sure end of the resurrected Savior who will come and bring His kingdom to pass fully and finally and bring us to be His own. But difficulty will cause us to doubt our security. We're held firmly in His grasp. Trials will cloud our true identity, much like happened here. 
You see in Naomi's story, like, like her pain was so present that she's like, I might as well change my name. It's like a whole identity shift. My name is Pleasant. You should probably just call me Bitter or Bitterness. Like her experience so defined her, it seemed that her, her name should change, but who's the one who gives us our name? God is the one who tells us who we are and whose we are. So we have to keep in view, he's the one who gives us our name. Agony confuses our view of the Almighty, but he never changes. He's always faithful and good. And what's interesting about this chapter is the chapter starts with a famine and ends with a harvest. Right? You see that contrast we talked about at the beginning. We see in our story this, this deep contrast in our lives. Courageous faith to crisis of faith. Trusting God and doubting God. Waiting in faith to wavering in fear. Emptiness and fullness. Difficulty and devotion. Pain and provision. Famine and harvest. So they return to the house of bread where waiting for them is a harvest. The 20 verses in between really depict the frailty of our own existence. All of our ups and downs all of our moments declaring our faith, the moments where we feel like we can't. And God sovereignly, graciously, in his kindness with us all the way. The dark clouds of God's providence and the mysterious ways he uses those clouds to lead us to a deeper understanding of who he is is present in this chapter. As we close off this morning, we're going to take communion together. Communion of the Lord's Supper is a celebration, it's a remembrance of God's great provision to pay for our sin and set us free. The cross of Jesus Christ is the moment where the darkest cloud in history broke forth with the deepest mercy in history. So as we take the elements together, let me just encourage you to remember that. The darkest moment, the darkest cloud in history brought the same deep mercy that greater than anything in history has ever known. I ask you to take a minute by your head as we consider these truths and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together.